Marlena, good morning. I think I'm right in saying that that last song is a Brooke Fraser song. Is that right? Back when the world was young, I was a youth pastor. And Brooke Fraser I th- was from Wellington, where I was. And I think she was probably about 20 at this point. Not hadn't sort of broken into the sort of wider pop world, but was sort of nationally known in the Christian music world. And her guitarist went to our church. And so we got her to come play the youth group. I was very excited about this, but I was a young youth pastor at this point. And I didn't realise that you don't book things on the night that carols by candlelight are on in town. So all 10 of us had Brooke Fraser and band play to us. And it says something about her that she didn't change a thing. Impressive woman. Well, back in those days too, I used to watch a lot of those CSI-type programs, you know, where crime-solving is done by scientists analysing the evidence. I found them really interesting. And apparently, um, one of the things that you look at first when someone is killed and you're doing the autopsy is you dig down, you pull their stomach out, and you drain the contents into a bowl. And you're going to, you know, what was their last meal might be quite significant, and, and, you know, where did they eat it? It will help work out their last movements. And you may remember um, this was a big issue. a couple of years ago in Palmerston with the Lundys who died and there was a question of the McDonald's that they'd eaten and what time they'd eaten at. Well, the, the, the coroner at CSI, who's um, this guy here, I remember he'd have his bowl and he'd just be going like this. Mm, yeah, Wendy's? No, no, it's McDonald's. I think it's the fillet of fish. Yes, it's the fillet of fish with the ice cream sundae. I feel like that coroner sitting with Romans 15, trying to imbibe the flavours. What's on offer? And there are quite a few flavours here. It's not a teaching um, spiel, but rather it's a bit of a sort of a snapshot of his ministry and life at this particular time, at this particular juncture. There's an insight into the relationship he was navigating his way through and his hopes and dreams for the future. And I think the best way to demonstrate that is to read the whole thing to you. Pastor Lundy's? All right, here we go. I myself feel confident about you, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge and able to instruct one another. That's nice. Nevertheless, there's a but coming. On some points, I've written to you rather boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to boast of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to win obedience from the Gentiles, 
by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and as far around as that one, uh, Croatia, Albania, I have fully proclaimed the good news of Christ. Thus I make it my ambition to proclaim the good news. Not where Christ has already been named, so that I do not build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him shall see, and those who have never heard of him shall understand. This is the reason that I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, with no further place for me in those regions, I desire, as I have for many years, to come to you when I go to Spain. It's very nice this time of year. For I, do not, for I do hope to see you on my journey and to be sent on by you once I've enjoyed your company for a little while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem in a ministry to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia, that's Greece, have been pleased to share their resources with the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. They were pleased to do this. Indeed, they owe it to them, for if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material things. So when I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will set out by way of you to Spain. And I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in earnest prayer to God on my behalf that I may be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea and that my ministry to Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you of joy and be refreshed in your company. The God of peace be with you all. Amen. So what did Paul want from the Romans? I think the first couple of verses are quite interesting. To paraphrase, it reads something like, you guys are really great. My youngest 23-year-old son would say, you're the shiz, or you're sick. Apparently that's a good thing. But I need a word with you as the apostle to the Gentiles. There's a rebuke here. Hidden in a velvet glove, sure, and it might explain why he put chapters 9 to 11 into his book, all about um, the role of Israel. And there's all that stuff about the weak and the strong in chapter 14. Maybe this was a church led by Gentiles, and they needed a bit of a nudge not to think too highly of themselves. Especially regarding their Jewish brethren. The underlying message here? Be kind. God loves the Jews too. In fact, they were a working part of the divine plan while you were still partying at the pagan temples. So perhaps you might like to pull your heads in a little bit. Then he segues on to his broader mission of starting new missionary works. And in particular his hope to move on to the end of move to the western end of the Mediterranean in Spain. And I'll show you this map because it's probably the best way to do this. So um, Corinth is sort of round here, Ephesus is here, Jerusalem is here, uh, Elicrium is round here. So this has been Paul's world. Rome here, 
and Spain all the way heck down here. Now, if he's going to minister in Spain, he needs a base. But he's not going to base himself way down here. It's just too far and it's too dangerous to travel by ship all the time. He's going to need future ministry support. And Rome is the most westerly Christian centre that he could have based himself on. Spain had not been a part of the empire for all that long at this point, so it's still probably a little bit wild. He's going to need help. Now from chapter 16, we can see that he knew a number of these Roman Christians, but he had not started this church. He hadn't previously been there. And maybe he felt, well, I should write a pretty good letter to them with all this theological stuff so that they can see that I'm the real deal. And so then they might support my ministry in Spain. If that's right, then this is the first missionary support letter in the Christian world. And I'm sure a number of you get those from various missions around the place. Okay. So what were his hopes and dreams for the existing churches? It's very clear, as I talked about last week, that he wanted them to be one. He was going to deliver the money raised for the Jerusalem church. They'd had some sort of disaster there. We don't know what, famine, not sure. But they were in dire need. He was going to deliver money raised for them from the Greek and Turkish churches in the hope that it would be received as a sort of a gesture of mutual love and care. And he prays at the end there that the Jerusalem Christians will accept the offering and not reject it, holding their nose, saying, well, there's Gentile money here. We don't want to touch that. He doesn't want those historical prejudices to get in the way of Christian unity. So this is a diplomatic mission with the aim of deepening relationships between these, the, emergent, uh, the different bits of the emerging church. And frankly, at that time, that cultural fault line between Jew and Gentile was probably the biggest threat to the church. Okay, so those are hopes and dreams for the existing church. What was the personal juncture here for Paul? Well, we can see in verses 23 through 28 that he's got the sense that his work in the eastern Mediterranean was over. And he's feeling the pull to the western end, particularly Spain. He'd wanted to be going there for quite some time, he says. He's got itchy feet. And he's had itchy feet for quite a while. Now, given the risk of sea travel, it's likely that he knew that if he went east, he was uh, west to Spain, he was never coming back. His work there was ended, and he'd been doing that work with those churches for a number of years at this point. So this is a significant time in his life. This is a transitional time. One door is about to shut, another door is about to open. He's in the corridor space between the two. And I've wondered if this is another reason why this letter is such a theological treatise. Here was Paul writing his magnum opus. Here's how, after all these years of preaching and evangelizing and doing all my thing, this is how I, what the gospel is and this is what its implications are. 
it's in one place. It's his, like his legacy statement. Um, Nelson Mandela wrote, Long Walk to Freedom is a legacy statement. It summed up his life, and it's a great read if you haven't read it. Pink Floyd's The Wall is their musical le legacy statement. It's the highest form of their art. And Leonardo's Mona Lisa. It's the first work of modern art that puts people, pictures people in their natural environment. These are all legacy statements. And maybe this was Paul's legacy statement. Okay. What does it say about roles within the body of Christ? Well, Paul was an apostle in the original sense of the word. He'd been called by Jesus on the Damascus Road to be a leader of the church. But he was also an apostle in the more general sense of the word in that his role was to start new things. Apostles are by nature pioneers. They need the challenge and they need the stimulation of the new, so they need to keep moving. I, I supervise uh, an Anglican guy who's an apostle type, and he's done some extraordinary things. But it's quite hard for him, because he said, there will come a time here soon that it will be best that I am gone, and yet I'm connected to these people. That will be difficult. Now, Paul said that he did not build on someone else's foundation, which, though, doesn't mean it's wrong to do that. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul said, I planted, Apollo, Apollos watered, and God gave the growth. So in my lingo, Paul was a hunter, Apollos was a farmer. Paul is on the move, chasing new game, while Apollos was to put down deep roots in one place. They're different roles. They're complementary roles. One is not better than the other. Now, verse 16 is quite interesting because Paul here refers to his work as priestly service. He styles himself as the priest who offers the sacrifice which is the Gentiles that have been made clean and holy by the Holy Spirit. And as we've read several times, Romans 12.2 refers to our lives being offered as living sacrifices to God. Now the Old Testament priests were very much a set-apart priesthood and their role was to mediate the relationship between God and his people. And that's what a priest is. They are a go-between. The Roman Catholics and to an extent the Anglicans have a similar approach in that they understand that when you are priested, you become a different type of person. And that is emphasised by the fact you've got the different outfits to wear. Protestant understanding is that all believers are priests now that what Jesus did was to abolish the laity, not the priesthood. Paul the Apostle mediated the grace of God to people through evangelism and church planting. Apollos the pastor mediated the grace of God through his discipleship and his pastoring. A prophet amongst us mediates the grace of God to us by proclaiming his truth 
The church handyman mediates the grace of God to us by fixing things that are broken. And the person who writes the monthly prayer list mediates the grace of God to us by helping us to pray. We are all priests to each other. Now my role as your called pastor is a little different, but it's a difference in degree, not in kind. When you called me here, I did not become a different type of person. Might have been good if I had. But your call and your stipend enable me to do a lot more priestly work in this community than someone who has a real job. There's a specialness about that relationship. I get it. But I think it's wrong, even dangerous, to look at people like me and see us as set-apart priests. I think this understanding of the priesthood is part of the reason that the Roman Catholics have made such a pig's ear of dealing with their abuse scandal. Because you can't just sack someone who you've told is now a different type of person and is a mediator with God. Whereas if you're a Baptist minister and get in that sort of trouble, your feet wouldn't touch the ground as you were carried out of the building. All right, a final thought on roles in the body of Christ. Is this comment in verse 32 that Paul longed to see the Romans and to be refreshed in their company? Mission used to be understood as something that one group of people did to or for another. But actually, I think that is an impoverished understanding. Mission is a two-way street. It changes both. I heard the story that I love and I want to share with you. And it's about an American uh, inner-city soup kitchen. It's been run by a small church, and the church was an ageing bunch of white people. And they were sort of doing this meal every week for these homeless folk and folk that were in that community. The members set up the table, they served the food, and they cleaned up afterwards, and then they had their, their meal with each other. There was little relational connection between the church and the people that they were trying to see, to serve. The number of service was dwindling as the congregation got older, and one day they had a crisis. The person who'd been their lead cook who was a real driver of this ministry, had health issues and could not continue. And that night they stood up, one of them stood up in front of the meal people gathered and to share their fear that, hey, we may not be able to continue to do this because we've lost our cook. But to their surprise, one of the whole homeless guys put up his hand and said, um, please, miss, I used to be a chef. Could I do it? From that beginning, there is now no difference between the church and their community. All serve each other, and they eat together. And in that coming together, the relationships have blossomed, and everyone has been enriched. That is two-way mission. Okay. What does Romans say about God's role in our Christian lives. In verse 15, Paul attributes his role to the grace of God. In verse 18, he refers to the things that Christ has had accomplished through him. And then in 30 to 33, 
he entrusts his dream of seeing them and his future ministry to God in prayer. People come to faith, churches are formed, people grow in Christ, every good Christian thing happens by the power of the Holy Spirit, usually acting through his people. And if we think it's all about us and how cool or clever we are, we kid ourselves. If God can use Balaam's donkey to prophesy, then he can replace your eye in a heartbeat. I met a church leader once who told me, uh, he's leading a parachurch organisation, he told me in all seriousness how utterly useless he was at his role. And he was serious. And he said, so I pray constantly before I do anything because I am, feel totally inadequate. And he said, if he didn't pray, nothing worked. He taught me something. It's not about me. We should celebrate when good things happen in people's lives, in church life. But God is the one who should get the credit or the glory for that. We are often too quick to honour each other. Good example of this. My old pastor was a good, faithful guy. He was doing his bit with a church of 100 or so folks in a, in a relatively small town. And the little brethren church down the road had a big dust-up about something. And about 60 of them trotted down the road to start coming to the Baptist church. Well, next year, the Baptist stud book, which is our statistics thing, it's called the stud book, um, came out. And he was much sought after as this newly anointed church growth expert who'd caused a mini-revival in his town. He still laughs about it. Got him his next job. What does this say about God's call on our lives? Well, Paul didn't know how his trip to Jerusalem would end up. But we've got the story, and we do. When he got there, he was warmly received by the church leadership, the Jewish Christians. We're told in Acts 21.20, they praised God when they heard tell of his stories of ministering to the Gentiles. So the relationship between the Jewish mother church and the mothership and the Gentile church plants was solidified and deepened as Paul had hoped it would be. And praise God for that. However, for those of you who have read the latter part of Acts, you'll know, shortly after, Paul was arrested as he was recognised by some Jewish people who were visiting Jerusalem. He was tried before the kings Felix and Agrippa, and when he said, hang about, I'm a Roman citizen, you can't do this to me, they said, oh, all right, and they put him in chains and they shipped him to Rome. There he stayed under house arrest for a couple of years, before being executed by Nero, who wanted um, Christian martyrs to, to justify the fire of Rome. He was blaming them for that. So Paul was never a, truly a free man again, and he never got to Spain. So he kind of got his call a bit wrong. We too can get our calls wrong. So we need to hold our thoughts on what God is calling us to, I think, pretty lightly. When I came here six years ago, I was to be your 18-month or so interim pastor. 
until you called a permanent replacement for Rob. I really enjoyed being an interim as it's all care and no responsibility. I thought maybe God was leading me to being a permanent interim pastor, bouncing from church to church, have Bible and lots of old sermons will travel, that kind of thing. And I recall suggesting to the board when we were talking about all this that we, we put a, call, a clause into the interim call agreement that I would not accept a permanent call here, which is the usual practice to avoid interims who try and make a place for themselves. And there are a few horror stories of where that has gone very, very wrong. I remember Phil fobbing me off and saying, ah, don't worry about it. So I didn't give it another thought. By the time the call process started, I felt very called here but told the board that I would not apply unless I was asked to. That seemed to me to be the ethical thing to do. But I was walking around like a man with a secret until I was asked to apply and was called to be your permanent pastor. I got it wrong initially, as did Paul. He was not called to minister to Spain, despite that being a very sensible idea for someone of his gifts and experience. Likewise, I might have been okay as an interim pastor. I think the truth is we do our best to discern the way ahead, but we should not assume that we have got it right. We need to hold those senses of call, those senses of God leading, God's leading, really, really lightly. Like Paul, at the end of this passage, we should commit our way ahead to the Lord in prayer, trusting in his goodness and faithfulness rather than in our own competence or skills. Thank you for your kind attentions. The musicians, please come back up. Please stand.
service with the benediction. May God hold you in the palm of his hand. May you allow him to mould you into what he wants you to be. May you joyfully fill the role he has given to you and feel peace in your soul. Have a good week. Thank you.